This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 25th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The problem of poverty in the United States seems as intractable as ever. Whole regions like Appalachia appear to have been almost entirely left behind by progress, despite trillions of dollars in public sector spending. J.D. Vance is author of the book Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. It's his story of growing up along the Hillbilly Highway. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit in March about poverty, culture, and well-meaning public attempts to help low-income people. I lived in Kentucky for about 16 years. I wasn't born there, but I, I went to high school there, went to college there. I had a career there. And uh, on my visits to eastern Kentucky uh, with friends of mine who were from the area, it becomes difficult really to, one, fully appreciate, let alone explain the nature of the problem, if you could even reduce it to one problem. Sure. It's, it's poverty, it's culture, it's um, economic opportunity. And uh, well, just give me just in a general sense uh, from your observations, what what is the linchpin if there is one? Yeah, that's that's really tough. I, I, I too would resist the idea of pinning it all on a single problem. But the way that I would explain it is that you take an area that for many generations has struggled in a number of different ways. Uh, it's struggled economically. The folks who have lived there have gotten used to a certain sense of struggle and even desperation in certain cases. And because of that, their children and their grandchildren grow up in a circumstances where they really, I think, expect not to do especially well. And so this sense that life is very foreclosed, that the, the opportunities that are maybe out there for other people aren't there for you, and consequently, that you don't have a lot of hope that things are going to get a whole lot better, I think is really one of the core things. It's complicated, but it's one of the core things that's really driving what's going on in that area. There's a development economist by the name of William Easterly who's mm -hmm. written a lot about development around the world. And his first big book uh, that I ever uh, was exposed to is called The Elusive Quest for Growth. Sure. And by way of, I think, drawing a parallel, he talked about where poverty was in the United States. And though the statement that really stuck with me in that book is... Uh, at the time, 18 of the 20 poorest all-white counties in the United States were in southeastern Kentucky. Yep. And that is, that's a, it's just a startling statistic. Yep. But when you think about development, like economic development, the broadening of the range of opportunities that people uh, are exposed to and can engage with, um, thinking about the third world and Appalachia isn't entirely inappropriate. No, it's, it's not. I mean, there are, unfortunately, in certain parts of the country, incredibly concentrated pockets of poverty and consequently of misery. And I do think that this is one of the areas where things are the worst. You know, it, it occurs to me when you when you mention Easterly's work that one of the big drivers of economic like re, economic growth in some of these regions uh, of the past 30 or 40 years is successful urban areas. And that's, of course, one of the things that Appalachia doesn't have a whole lot of that you can pin your hat, hat on is really big cities that drive the regional economy. And part of that is just it, there's, it's geographic. Yeah, absolutely. And one of it, you know, it's expensive to knock the top off a mountain, for right. example. Right. Uh, but as a, as a matter of culture, you mentioned that people feel uh, relatively desperate in sure. a lot of ways, and that 
has continued for decades. How do you view uh, the Great Society programs that, you know, authored by, in some ways, by Eastern Kentucky sure. U.S. Representative Carl D. Jackson? Sure. Um, you know, what, what impact has that, that had? Well, on the one hand, it's difficult not to admire, I think, the intentions behind the Great Society, because it really was the first large-scale effort, I think, to deal with some of these, these long-term multi-generational um, poverty problems. It, it has worked in the sense that there are fewer people living in absolute desperation in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, all across the country, really. It has worked in that sense. What it has really failed at is creating a truly um, self-sufficient, upwardly mobile group of people. And so, unfortunately, what you have in a lot of these families, a lot of these communities, is people who have only known poverty going back generations. You have, the, you, unfortunately, a sort of perpetual class of people who have never known anything like real economic opportunity. And, and despite the fact that it's prevented a lot of people from starving to death, which is, of course, admirable and necessary, I think the Great Society has really failed at creating a class of people who can rise through the economic ranks. And that's, to me, it's, it's enduring failure. So one of the lessons from, we, I mentioned Bill Easterly, one of the lessons from his work, one of the lessons from the work of Peter Bauer, the development economist, and really the the... the 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 crux of the work of F.A. Hayek is we can't design for people a world that will uh, bring out their best attributes, sure. that will make them want to succeed. And the, the lesson really is, is humility with respect to designing policy. But I would argue that the Great Society was not a very humble effort. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that's right. I think the Great Society w was not an especially humble effort. I mean, m my sense of this, and you know, I, I, I do think that there has to be some role for policy in these problems. Just a absent, you know, absent policy, there's a question of what do you do, and I think you have to do things at the community level, at the local government level, at the civic institution level. But I do think that there's a role for state and federal policy here. Um, but it has to come with a certain amount of humility, because the lesson of the past 40 or 50 years of policy interventions is that these really grand efforts tend not to succeed by their own terms. They, they, they tend not to lift people out of poverty and keep them out of poverty for a long, for a long time. That said, I, I think that that humility should counsel us in the favor of really asking tough questions about whether a given policy intervention might work, actually figuring out that it does work before scaling it to a multi-billion or even multi-trillion dollar effort. But don't you think that uh, lawmakers, when faced with uh, the uh, areas of severe poverty, but with plenty of voters, are uh, strongly incentivized to provide the things that are going to get them reelected? I mean, for from Carl Jackson to Hal Rogers, sure. who's uh, a mover and shaker with respect to pork uh, that that's just a natural and uh, perhaps inevitable consequence of a political solution to the problem of poverty. Well, that's certainly... Um, it, <laughs> I don't know that I'd say it's inevitable. It's certainly something that we see again and again in these circumstances. And so I do think that that should sound a cautionary note before we dive into these problems. I, I think that the worry that I have... 
um, with a lot of these large-scale policy interventions is because it, it, is that there's a pressure to do something. You're faced with this problem, and politicians want to try to fix the problem. And I think that if you go into it with a fixed mentality instead of an understand and figure out what works maybe at the small scale before trying to scale it massively up, then you end up with a lot of the programs that we've had. Um, and like I said, I think they've, they've been they've wasted a fair amount of money. They haven't necessarily worked. And I think they waste political capital in a way that's really important, right? Because people start to lose faith that people, you know, that elected leaders are even capable of solving these problems, or they start to think that it's not even worth solving these problems, which I don't think is necessarily the right approach. The, the current example, actually, that I would use that really worries me on this front is early childhood education, right? So there's some early evidence that early childhood education, when done right, is actually a very powerful tool for giving kids long-term uh, life success. But scaling but the those programs. Is scaling it has never worked, and there's no good evidence right now that we could scale it to three, four million kids. So I, I think that if we take the approach of let's just fix this problem, then that's how we end up with a program that serves 4 million kids and actually doesn't have fantastic outcomes. But if we approach it with a little bit of humility, I'm open-minded to the fact that eventually we start to figure out levers that we can push and pull that may work. So I'm not a total pessimist here. All right. So, um, you know, when, when I, I'm a big bluegrass music fan, <laughs> a, a lot of my musical heroes came from uh, North Carolina, rural North Carolina came from uh, Eastern Kentucky. Um, and in the canon of bluegrass music, there's this uh, understanding that if there's not work where you are, this is in the 40s and 50s before sure. the Great Society, if there's not work where you are, if there's no hope where you are, you leave. Right. But th that kind of mobility or that sense of I need to go find my own fortune. Uh, has that been in decline in the last 40 or 50 years? My sense is that it has been. And if you look at the data, there's a lot of good evidence that suggests that geographic mobility has dropped off pretty significantly. Now, on the one hand, it's easy to see why, right? In the 40s and 50s, if you didn't leave a place like Eastern Kentucky, you might starve to death, right? Where that's obviously not an incentive that people are faced with these days. So I think we have to be mindful of the fact that, again, I don't think that we should want people to starve to death or let them starve to death. But the fact that some of these programs create disincentives to actually move to places where there are more opportunities. And that's not just bad, of course, for the people who are choosing to stay put instead of going and finding better jobs and better work opportunities and so forth. The thing that worries me the most is that it's especially bad for their children who find themselves trapped in places where there just isn't a whole lot of hope. There isn't a whole lot going on. You uh, make a note of that a distant relative of yours <laughs> uh, may have begun the Hatfield-McCoy dispute by yep. murdering a man. It was my understanding that the Hatfield-McCoy dispute was actually started over the theft of a pig. <laughs> uh, there are a number of, of different competing explanations for how the Hatfield and McCoy dispute uh, got started. But one of the most popular that I've seen out there um, is that so the, I think the murdering of pig incident actually came before Jim Vance killed Asa Harmon McCoy. And uh, Jim Vance, just like me, James Vance, but was actually a distant cousin of mine. <laughs> In trying to present a solution, and there, I, I, I would argue that there probably aren't many good policy solutions that do not involve a, a large-scale withdrawal of the federal government, uh, at the very least, and perhaps even state government from a lot of these areas. 
Um, you know, an old econ professor of mine used to say the problem with Eastern Kentucky is that it's overpopulated. Yeah, you know, the, I, I have I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, it's obviously the case that Eastern Kentucky cannot provide enough good jobs for the people who live there. But it's also obviously the case that there are people who grew up there that have an incredible attachment to it. And the, the advice, just move, while it's something that I've certainly counseled people to do, and it's something that I argue in the book, is that we need more geographic mobility out of these incredibly impoverished areas. I think that any policy thinking that doesn't at least account for the fact that a lot of people aren't just going to move, that they're going to stay attached to that area, um, it, it isn't being serious enough to the way that people are attached to their homes and are going to always be committed to them in one way or another. So, I do think we ought to promote more geographic mobility, but I also think that I resist the idea that we can wholesale abandon these areas entirely because the people who live there aren't going to abandon them, and we have to do something for those people. Now, does that mean it's a massive federal policy? Maybe not. In, in my view, probably it shouldn't be, at least most of the time. It's interesting you mentioned this word solutions, because I always resist the idea that there are solutions to this problem because I think it it, it sort of envisions the it, it sort of envisions the idea that you can a hundred percent fix the problem, right? Like math problems have solutions, and I I, I tend to think that um, if we can put our thumb on the scale a little bit, if we can actually make things a little bit better for a subset of the population, if we can promote a little bit more upward mobility, then we'll have done as much as we can do. And we'll have frankly done a lot more than, than, than policy has done up to this point. So what evidence indicates that our effort, and, and I will admit that it, it causes a lot of dissonance to me personally, and always has when I lived in Kentucky, that um, there is there was no there was no simple policy yep. uh, that you could just adopt, and then suddenly there are jobs. Suddenly there are the, the people's best uh, parts of themselves are going to be empowered. Um, but at the same time, there are there, and the, so within me and within others, there is this effort. What are we going to do? Right. That a strong desire to do something. Uh, so, what promotes upward mobility in your in your view of as a policy matter? Sure. Well, you know the the program that I've seen that actually provides me with the most optimism was this study that was done in the '90s, I believe, called the Moving to Opportunity Study. And again, it, it's it's the sort of thing that I think we should be doing, which is trying things on a small scale, not spending a ton of money, but then looking at what the long term outcomes are to see whether there may be something worth pursuing on a larger scale. The basic idea was that you take kids who grew up in incredibly impoverished areas and you actually provide various financial incentives to move them and their families to more prosperous areas. And the evidence, you know, Raj Shetty, the Stanford economist, has done some good work on this. The evidence suggests pretty strongly that the kids who moved did much better than the kids who stayed. And importantly, the earlier the kids moved, the better they did. So the kid who moved when he was eight years old did a lot better than the kid who moved when he was 12 years old and so forth. So I, I do think that there are reasons for optimism, things that we might do to, to, to move the needle a little bit. But does that mean you're going to completely eliminate poverty in Eastern Kentucky? No. But does it mean that you'll help some people have better opportunities? Yes. And I think that's a worthwhile effort. J.D. Vance is author of Hillbilly Elegy. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.